The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So I do invite you to open to Hosea chapter 1. A few weeks ago, I went to the eye doctor because I've been feeling like uh, my glasses prescription is wrong. I'm seeing double with my left eye. Everything kind of has like this ghost image that puts my whole world out of focus. Yes, even right now, all of you people are doubled. And the doctors can't really figure out what's going on. They know that it's nothing serious, but they cannot find the right lens that will bring everything into focus. Some people have tried to encourage me by saying, oh, Jonathan, I've got something like that. You'll just get used to it and you eventually won't even notice it. But I don't want to get used to a distorted vision of reality. I want to see things the way they really are. And so I need a lens that will bring everything into focus. Today is the first Sunday of Lent, and Lent is meant to serve as a lens that brings our life into focus. Too often, we live with a distorted vision of reality, not not seeing what life is really about, not seeing what it is that we actually really need. And Lent brings our deepest need into sharp relief. It does this by being a season of repentance and fasting. Repentance reminds us that we need a Savior. That's our deepest need. I need someone who pays the price for my sin and death. I, I need a Savior. Fasting reminds us of the same thing, but in a little bit different way. Fasting reminds us that I need a Savior who can satisfy the hunger of my soul. I wasn't designed to live by bread alone, and bread nor anything else temporary can satisfy my true deepest hunger. God and God alone can, and he does it in and through Christ. Repentance and fasting act as a lens that brings into focus our need of Christ. We need a crucified and resurrected Savior who's defeated our sin and death and become the satisfaction of our souls forever. Lent brings into focus our need of Easter. And the book of Hosea does the same thing. This Lenten season, we're going to take a journey through Hosea because I believe that studying this book will be like putting on a pair of lenses that brings life into focus. The Israelites in Hosea's day, they had a distorted vision of reality. And they'd gotten so used to it, they didn't even notice it. They they had a distorted view of God. They had a distorted view of themselves. They had a distorted view of what life is all about. Do we? Like shades, do we see God rightly? I know there are times when I don't see God rightly because I come to this word and I don't like what I see of him. I've made him up a different way in my head. And that comes into conflict with this word. Do we see God rightly? Do we see ourselves rightly? The way that God sees us, do we see life rightly? Do we want to? That's the real question. Because most of us, like the Israelites in Hosea's day, are quite comfortable and in love with our own distorted version of reality. In Hosea's day... People loved their version of reality, and for them to see things rightly was going to be harder than they could imagine, more painful than they could imagine. But it would also be more beautiful than they could begin to comprehend. 
The same is true for us, Shades. This journey through Hosea will be a difficult one. There are some of the hardest, harshest words in the Bible here. Some of the most ferocious, horrific, and I don't have adjectives big enough, ferocious and horrific descriptions of the wrath of God are here. But there are also some of the most beautiful words that we've ever seen here, and we can't have one without the other. You don't get the beauty at its highest height if you don't get the difficulty at its deepest depth. It's the difficulty that makes the beautiful beautiful. It's the judgment that makes salvation good news. So, this Lent, let's not be in love with a distorted view of reality, but let's, let's put on the hard lens of Hosea and see God for who He is, ourselves for who we are, and let's see the beauty of the gospel come into full focus. That's the lens. That's the lens that the prophet Hosea is going to give us in Hosea 1-3. through 3. The lens of God, Gomer, who is Israel or us, God, Gomer, and the gospel. I'm going to do my best to take you through these first three chapters this morning, just skimming the surface. These three chapters, they are different from the rest of the book, and they're different because they contain a story. The story, mostly a story, and it's the story of Hosea and his unfaithful wife, Gomer. I didn't name her. Don't blame me. Blame her father, Deblium. He probably named her that because he was upset with his own mother for being named Deblium. But that's beside the point. Whatever. We get this story of Hosea and and his unfaithful wife, Gomer. The rest of the book, chapters 4 through 14, are going to be a selection of Hosea's prophetic preaching. And that is comprised overwhelmingly of words of judgment. Judgment that cannot be understood unless it's seen through the lens of Hosea 1 through 3. Through the lens of God, Gomer, and the gospel. Unless we have an undistorted, in-focus view of God, an undistorted, in-focus view of Gomer, ourselves, and an undistorted, in-focus view of the gospel, we can't understand the rest of Hosea. I would argue we can't understand the rest of the Bible. We can't understand life, reality as it is. This is the lens through which we see all of reality, the lens of God, Gomer, and the gospel. So, let's see how Hosea gives us each of those things in the first three chapters in focus. God in focus, Gomer in focus, gospel in focus. Let's see it. So that all of Hosea's words, all of scripture, all of life, reality, we might see that in focus as well. So we're going to take these things one at a time. First, Hosea brings God into focus. Hosea brings God into focus. Underneath each of these things, I'm going to have two kind of sub points that will help us explore how he does this. It's going to take us a hot second before we get to those sub points underneath God. This is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. Because if we miss this, we miss the rest. We can't understand Gomer ourselves unless we have an accurate picture of God and who he is. We can't understand the gospel unless we have this accurate picture of God. So first, Hosea brings God into focus. Look at Hosea 1, and we're going to start in verse 2. It says, When the Lord first spoke through the prophet Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, 
Take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So when I was dating, I remember always wishing that God would short-circuit the process and just speak to me from the heavens and tell me who I'm supposed to marry. Be careful what you wish for. There are very few scriptural examples of that. And this is primarily the one that comes to mind first. He does this for Hosea. It doesn't quite go how you would think. Go, take a wife. Hosea's like, yeah! Of whoredom and have children of whoredom. Hosea, go and marry a woman who is publicly known for sleeping around. Make a family with her. A family where you won't even be able to tell if the kids are yours. Neither will anybody else. Why would God have Hosea do this? He tells us why. He says, do it because the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. The land, the people, they commit whoredom by forsaking the Lord. In Hosea's day, the people of Israel, they'd been forsaking God for quite some time. At this point, in the history of the nation, the, the, the people are actually divided between a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. Hosea lives and prophesies in the northern kingdom of Israel. And Israel, from the very moment it showed up on the scene as an independent nation, went after idols and never changed its course. They forsook the Lord again and again and went after other gods who promised to pay them for their worship. Gods like Baal. Baal was the primary god that they went after over and over again. Baal promised to pay you for your worship. Baal was a a god of agriculture and fertility, basically a god of giving life, whether that life is crops or whether it's kids. So if you worship Baal, he'll give you kids and he'll grow your crops. You give him worship, he gives you gifts. And God looks at that and says, that's spiritual prostitution. Israel has given her intimate worship that is to be reserved for God and God alone. She's given it to other gods in exchange for payment. And worse yet, Israel is actually blind to the fact that they are doing this in unfaithfulness. They're blind to the fact that they're being unfaithful. Why? Because, in their mind, we haven't forsaken the Lord. We still worship Him too. You can read in places like Hosea chapter 2 and verse 11 where it indicates that the people mixed worship with God, the Lord, Yahweh, alongside worship of Baal and other gods. Actually, chapter 2 and verse 16 indicates that they even, on occasion, apparently called the Lord Baal. He's just another one of the Baals that we worship. So you see, in their mind, they weren't forsaking God. They were still worshiping Him. They were just worshiping others too. They fail to see that they have become spiritual harlots because they fail to see who God is. Their one and only husband. The one and only true God worthy of worship. So, through Hosea, God is going to give them a lens to bring that reality into focus. Like These people, they may be blind to their own unfaithfulness, but they're all going to be able to see quite publicly the unfaithfulness of Hosea's wife. 
Verse 3, Hosea obeys. So he went and he took Gomer, daughter of Dibliam. And everyone saw Gomer's unfaithfulness. It's public knowledge. Everyone could see how, how she wronged Hosea. He should be her one and only husband. How could she possibly treat him like just another man among a myriad of lovers? He was her husband, her one and only, worthy of her intimate love. And so everybody could feel a righteous indignation, a righteous anger on Hosea's behalf. We can feel it. Like, Gomer, what are you doing? We feel a righteous anger on on behalf of Hosea and everyone could see how Hosea would be justified to just walk away. And it's through this lens that God says to His people, this is what you, my people, have done to me in an even greater way. Shades. Do you see the irony of Israel's outlook on life that's so often true of us? That they see their unfaith, they don't even recognize it as unfaithfulness, but whatever it is, they see it, whatever they're doing against God, they see it as something so small. But Gomer's unfaithfulness against Hosea, well, they see that, their society sees that as something massive. God wants us to see that in reality, Hosea's marriage to Gomer is the small picture. It's not that what's happening there is unimportant. No, it's massively important. But this that it points to is that much grander, that much greater. Hosea's marriage is the small picture of the greater reality. That's why God created marriage at all in the first place. He created the covenant of marriage as a small picture of the bigger, larger reality, his covenant relationship that he shares with his people. So here's the question being posed by Hosea. If we can see on the small scale that a husband or a wife should not be treated as just one among a myriad of lovers, but they should be treated as unique, as the only one worthy of their spouse's intimate love, we can see that on the small scale, then can we not see in an even greater way on a grander scale that God is not one to be worshipped amongst a myriad of lovers? No, He is uniquely God. There is no other. He is the only one worthy of our worship. We have a word for this. The Bible has a word for this. It's holy. Hosea is bringing into focus God as holy, unique, the only true God, infinitely worthy of worship as the supreme treasure of the universe. That's what it means for him to be holy. He's in a category all by himself. There's nothing more valuable than him. Everything else of value derives its value from him. He's holy, the supreme treasure over all. And yet his people are treating him like he's just another lover. When he's not, he's holy. This takes us to our first sub-point of Hosea bringing God into focus. Hosea brings the height of God's holiness into focus through words of judgment. Hosea brings the height of God's holiness into focus through words of judgment. Judgment. Gomer is about to give birth to three children. 
And each of these children are going to be given a symbolic name to indicate the judgment that's in store for Israel's unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness begets judgment. Each of these children will have a symbolic name that's going to show judgment's coming for you, Israel. And the, and the nearest future judgment is coming for them in the form of exile. The Assyrians are coming. They're going to defeat the kingdom of Israel, lay waste to it, take them all into exile, strip them naked as people often were before they were hauled away into exile. They, they have been stripping themselves to commit adultery, willingly get in bed with the gods of other nations, and God says the nations are about to strip you unwillingly and take you away. And this is, this is an intense word of judgment that we're about to see through the naming of these children. And the intensity of the judgment brings into focus the height of God's holiness. We all understand how, how that principle works. It's the principle of the punishment fits the, the crime, right? In other words, the greater a judgment, the greater a sentence upon a crime is signifies the, the greater heinousness, the greater height of the crime. And we're about to see the height of God's holiness come into full focus through the intensity of the judgment. Look at verse 3. Verse 3. And she, that's Gomer... Gomer conceived and bore him a son. It's the only child for certain we know is Hosea's. She conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while, judgment's coming. In just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, verse 5, and on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer has a son, and his name basically means judgment. Jezreel, the, the word, literally means to scatter, to scatter in the sense of destroying something, like my son Asher does anytime there's blocks built. It's, it's, it's automatic. It's a scatter to destroy situation. And the word itself, you can hear a word play going on. That's on purpose. There's lots of word play in the book of Hosea. The Hebrews love word play. There's a lot of it in the Bible. Apparently God loves word play. And in, you can hear it in English that Jezreel and Israel sound kind of like, it gets even more explicit in, in Hebrew when you're dealing with Yezreel and Yisrael. The word play is clear. Judgment, Jezreel, is coming for Israel. Your spiritual unfaithfulness is begetting Judgment, judgment that will bring into focus the height of God's holiness. This is intense judgment. I know it's intense, again, because God chooses the word Jezreel. He doesn't just choose the word Jezreel because of its lexical meaning, scatter, destroying. He chooses the word Jezreel because of its historical meaning. Jezreel is a valley. It's a valley in Israel, a valley where, where God, if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 9 and 10, God used a man by the name of Jehu. He's mentioned here in verse 3 and 4, right? He used a man by the name of Jehu to come in and to wipe out the dynasty of Ahab and Jezebel and all of their priests who had led the people astray to worship Baals. And that happens in the valley of Jezreel. And it's, it's just bloodshed everywhere. God's judgment executed on this wicked king for leading the people into Baal worship. And right after that, Jehu is made king. 
and he makes a mistake. 2 Kings 10.31 says, But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, the founding king of Israel, which he made Israel to sin. Jehu and his descendants lead the people into idol worship, just like those whom they had destroyed in the valley of Jezreel. They don't learn. God pours out his judgment on those. And in Hosea's day, the descendants of Jehu are still in charge, still in power, and still leading the people into Baal worship. So God says in verse 4, I will bring the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. I think that's a better translation of the Hebrew right there. I don't think that it says, I will punish Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. Jehu didn't do anything wrong in shedding blood in the valley of Jezreel. He did what God told him to, executing his judgment. No, I, I think what God is saying is the same judgment that came upon those earlier royal families is about to come upon the house of Jehu because they're doing the same thing, leading the people into spiritual prostitution. God says, just a little while, and I will bring the bloodshed of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, those in power over Israel. I'll bring it on Israel. Israel, you're about to have your own Jezreel moment. Judgment is coming in the form of horrifying bloodshed. The wages of sin is death. And the intensity of the judgment brings into focus the height of God's holiness. Nothing is higher. He's holy, unique, in a category by himself, supreme treasure overall. And yet Israel, by worshiping other gods, declares, that's not true, God. By worshiping other gods, their actions, their words, their thoughts say, you aren't unique, you aren't distinct, you aren't the supreme treasure over the universe, you aren't holy. Their actions, their words, their thoughts say, Baal is just as good, maybe even better than you are, because he gives me kids and crops. What have you done for me lately? With their lives, they lie about who God is. Do we lie with our lives? With this... Do our lives, our thoughts, our words, our actions, do they declare the truth that God is the greatest treasure in the universe, that he is holy? Or does my life make him look like one trinket amongst many? Shades, there is no greater evil. I, I am not being hyperbolic. I have thought about this statement a lot. There is no greater evil than this to say that God is not holy. Word, thought, or deed. It's the essence of sin to say, God, you're not God. You're not the greatest supreme truth. I am, or something else is. There is no greater evil than that. Think about it this way, like, if I had two cups up here filled with magic potions, because it's my illustration, I get to create the world and there's magic potions, okay? So they're filled with magic potions, and, and, and in one of them is a potion that if I give it to you, it will give you eternal life filled with maximum joy. And in the other, there is an eternity of misery, disease, and darkness. Basically, an eternal death. So I've got these two cups. How evil would I have to be to lie to you 
and tell you the opposite is true of each. Like, like to, to deny that this cup contains eternal joy, that's not really what's in it. You don't really want that. And to push forward to you eternal death as if it is a glass filled with life itself. This is what Israel is doing. Through their words, their thoughts, and their deeds, their lives say God is not unique, not distinct, not the supreme treasure of the universe. And they push forward something else in His place. Other gods, there is no greater evil than this. And the judgment fits the crime. The greatest crime gets the greatest judgment, death. And the height of God's holiness is coming into focus through these words of judgment. Gomer has two more children. We'll go through them fast. Given two more symbolic names that just confirm what we've already seen. In verse 6, she has a daughter named Lo-Ruhamah. Don't catch many people renaming their daughters after Lo-Ruhamah because it means no mercy. Judgment is coming to Israel. Jezreel bloodshed is coming, not mercy. In verse 9, Gomer has yet another son. God names him Lo-Ami, not my people. For God says in verse 9, you are not my people and I am not your God. This is an exact reversal of the covenant language God had spoken over his people in Exodus 6 when he brought them out of Egypt. You'll be my people. I'll be your God. And now he stands ready to send them back to a figurative Egypt, to send them into exile, and he reverses the language. You're not my people. I'm not your God. That last phrase, I'm not your God, it it could literally be translated, I am not, I am to you. I am. His covenant name. God says, don't call me that. It's surprising to hear God talk like that. This kind of judgment language is all over the book of Hosea. It's all over all the prophets. They don't think that it's just in the, 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 New Test- the Old Testament. It's all over the New Testament. It finds its way into the words of Jesus himself throughout the Gospels. It finds its way all over the place in the book of Revelation. Finds its way into Paul throughout. It's, it's all over the Bible. It is a false notion that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. And the God of the New Testament is a God of mercy. It's the same God. It's the same God. And I would argue that what we see true of God's wrath and his love in the Old Testament, both of them get ratcheted up in the New. Both intensify. This kind of judgment language, it is all over the place. And most of us don't even have categories to understand how God could speak this way. And yet, yet we do have categories to understand the righteous anger of a spouse who's been cheated on. And that's God's point to the people of Israel and to us. We don't see him clearly. We make him so small. So our unfaithfulness towards him seems like something so small. We can see unfaithfulness towards a spouse is a big thing, but towards God, that's a little thing. But that can't happen in Hosea 1 because the God of Hosea 1 is not small. 
shades. See the height of His holiness come into focus through these words of judgment. God's words of judgment only make sense when we see the height of His holiness. When we see Him for who He is, holy. And so Hosea brings His holiness into focus, but that's not all. Hosea doesn't stop here. He's not done bringing God into focus for us yet. Yes, Hosea brings the height of God's holiness into focus through words of judgment and, second subpoint. I know everybody's freaking out. 28 minutes, we're still on you know, point number one. We're going to make it, people. I told you, it's a lot, but we're going to make it. And Hosea brings the depth of God's love into focus through words of salvation. The height of His holiness through words of judgment the depths of his love through words of salvation. Look at Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10. And remember, this verse, verse 10, is coming right on the heels of verse 9. God literally just said, you're not my people, don't call me your God. These are his very next words, verse 10. Yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And, children of Ju- and the children of Judah and the children of Israel, these two split kingdoms, they'll be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head, one king, one ruler, and they shall go up from the land for, they, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. I read that and I'm confused. Like all the judgment that we have seen so far looks like it's turned on its head, like it's getting reversed. God calls His people His people again. They're shown mercy again. They're not getting the bloodshed of Jezreel, of Jezreel judgment. No, they, they're getting Jezreel's salvation. Like He calls this, clearly a day of salvation, the day of Jezreel. I told you he likes wordplay. I told you earlier that Jezreel means to scatter in the sense of destroying something. But what I didn't tell you is that it can also mean to scatter in the sense of planting seeds. And God says he's going to bring his people back from exile and he will plant them in their land. They will grow up from the land. It's literally, it borders on a picture of resurrection. A destroyed people growing up from the land after they've been planted by the hand of God. They'll no longer be a divided people. They'll be united under one head, one ruler, one king on this day of Jezreel salvation. This is total transformation from what we read earlier. And we start asking, how is this possible? God's holy. We've seen the height of His holiness. Is that all of a sudden canceled out by the, the depths of his love? Like, like, aren't these things in, in conflict? God's holiness and his, his love? Hosea doesn't think, seem to think so. He brings both of them into focus. As a matter of fact, I think that Hosea would argue to us that God's holiness is a loving holiness. That God's wrath is a loving wrath. It aims to clear his world of sin and disease and death and everything that plagues it, to heal it and make it whole. His holiness is a loving holiness. You pray for the wrath of God every time you pray, your kingdom come. You're asking, clear it out, reset it, make it new. 
is holiness. It's a loving holiness. And I think Hosea would also tell us that his love is a holy love. And both of these things are true and brought into focus. And we're left scratching our heads asking, how can this be so? How can God be both holy towards his Gomer-like people and also loving towards them? How's that work? Hosea helps us by bringing Gomer into greater focus. This is our second thing. Hosea brings Gomer, or Israel, or us. Uh, we're going to be looking at, at verses in chapter 2 where, honestly, you can't really tell. Is, is this about Gomer or is it about Israel? That's the point. Yes, it's about both. Hosea brings Gomer, us, into focus. How does he do this? First subpoint. Hosea brings the depth of Gomer's sin into focus through words of depravity. Hosea brings the depths of Gomer's, our sin, into focus through words of depravity. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. Gomer, or Israel, either one, said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Do you see Gomer's twisted logic right here? You see what makes her prone to wonder? She looks at her lovers and says, they're better for me than, than Hosea is. Instead of the husband who has covenanted to love her, she runs into the arms of lovers who she believes offer better provision, bread and water. Offer better protection, wool and flax, that which is made to make clothing and protect you from the elements. They offer better pleasure, oil and drink. And this is ultimately, Gomer, again, is ultimately a picture of the depraved and twisted logic of Israel. Instead of looking, instead of Israel looking to the only true and holy, loving God that's covenanted to love them, they run into the arms of other gods. They run into the arms of Baal. Because they believe that Baal has better provision. He sends rain to grow the crops. Surely Baal has better protection. You know, through worshiping Baal, they're able to get into alliances. This is going to become important later in the book. They're able to get into alliances with other nations that worship Baal, nations that worship together, war together. And surely Baal not only offers better provision, better protection, but surely he offers better pleasure. In chapter 3 and verse 1, God will actually point out how his people favor Baal's raisin cakes over him. But Baal offers an even deeper temptation and pleasure. It's a fertility cult. Their worship involved temple prostitution. All manner of ecstasies. It's actually possible, one can make an argument, that Gomer even served as one of these temple prostitutes. They go to Baal for better provision, protection, pleasure. And are, are not our own hearts tempted towards these same things? Prone to wonder. We sing about this, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Why? We're prone to wonder after what we perceive as better provision, protection, pleasure. Like looking to God for those things is great, but, but can I seek out a few other things to put alongside of him? A little provision through a little greed? A little bit more protection through compromise for more political power? A little bit more pleasure through a little bit of lust? Can I, can I not... Worship God with a few lovers on the side who seem like they're providing for me just as well as he ever has? 
we fail to see reality in focus. Just like Gomer failed to see it, Israel failed to see it. What is the reality? The reality is put on display in verse 8. Look at chapter 2 and verse 8. And she did not know. Gomer didn't know. Israel didn't know. This is God speaking. This is Hosea speaking. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. It's the united heart cry of Hosea and God. Both of them, their hearts beat to the broken beat of love. Hosea and God, Hosea, he he was the source of Gomer's provision. Even as she used those things to pursue her other lovers. God, he was the source of Israel's provision. Even as they used those things to pursue other gods. Gomer's unfaithfulness brings Israel's unfaithfulness into focus. It brings our unfaithfulness into focus. Shades, I confess you how often, oh so often, too often do I use everything that God has given me to pursue anything but him. Can I dig a deeper depth into sin? Hosea brings the depth of Gomer's sin, Israel's sin, and our sin into focus through these words of depravity. And in light of the full height of God's holiness, I know this is true. I don't deserve to be his people. I don't deserve mercy. I deserve Jezreel judgment. Judgment is the word that is spoken over Gomer, over Israel, and over us. In chapter 2, verses 9 to 13, we don't have time to walk through it, but it is horrific descriptions of the judgment that awaits their sin. But that's not all. Hosea is not done bringing Gomer into focus for us. Yes, Hosea brings the depth of Gomer's sin into focus through words of depravity. And, sub-point two, Hosea brings the height of Gomer's salvation into focus through words of reversal. He brings the height of Gomer's salvation, Israel's, our salvation, into focus through words of reversal. Look at Hosea chapter 2 and verse 14. Therefore. What are you expecting God to say after therefore? Like in verses 9 through 13, he's just basically said, Gomer, my people, they've forgotten me. They deserve nothing but judgment. Therefore, judgment. Therefore, that's what they did. I will annihilate it. That's what we expect. It's not what we get. Therefore, I will allure her. Not annihilate her. I will allure her. And bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. The valley of Achor, we get another valley here. The valley of Achor, it was known as a valley of judgment, just like Jezreel. Like if you walked through the valley of Achor, you would eventually come upon this massive pile of rocks. You couldn't go through it. You had to go around it. There was no avoiding this sign of judgment because at the bottom of those rocks was the skeleton of a man named Nacon. And Israel stoned to death and piled the rocks upon him for his rebellion against God. There was no path around judgment through Achor. No path through judgment. 
in Achor. But now God says, in Achor, I'm opening a door called hope. Do you see what he's saying? God's saying, I'm going to take the very place of judgment and make that the place of salvation. And his promises just keep getting better. In verses 16 to 17, God says that he's going to save his people back to himself, away from Baal worship, and he alone will be their provider. In verse 18, he says that he's going to deal with all natural evil and with all moral evil, and he will make them safe. He alone will be their protector. In verse 19, he says he's going to betroth himself to them forever so that he alone will be their husband, their eternal pleasure, provision, protection, pleasure, all from him. This is nothing less than full and final salvation. God turning the place of judgment, the Jezreel, the Achor, into a place of salvation. Don't believe me that's what's happening? Read how the passage ends. Verse 23, where he turns pronouncements of judgment into pronouncements of salvation. He says, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Hosea is bringing the height of Gomer's salvation, Israel's salvation, ours. He is bringing the height of our salvation into focus through words of reversal. The place of judgment becoming the place of salvation, the pronouncements of judgment becoming the pronouncements of salvation, and the person judged, Gomer, Israel, us, becoming the person saved. How? How, like I'm in the same place after he brought God into focus. How can that be? Hosea brings the how into focus in chapter 3. Third, final thing, Hosea brings the gospel into focus. Hosea brings the gospel into focus. Here you go, sub point one. Hosea brings the depth of the gospel into focus through words of personal redemption. Hosea brings the depth of the gospel into focus through words of personal redemption. Look at Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And the Lord said to me, to Hosea, go again. Go again. Love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her. Fifteen shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine many days you shall not play the whore or belong to another man so will I also be to you at some point in this story Gomer left Hosea no longer receiving his provision or his protection seeking her pleasure elsewhere all she found was brokenness. Somehow, we don't know how, but she ends up in some form of slavery. And Hosea goes to her, to the place of judgment. 
and through him it becomes a place of salvation. He turns a pronouncement of judgment, slave, whore. She's what she's been made to believe she was. This is your identity, Gomer. He turns a pronouncement of judgment into a pronouncement of salvation. You are my wife. You will be mine, and I will be yours. And the judged person becomes the saved person. How? We just saw how Hosea pays the price for her rescue, for her redemption. He can't even pay it all in cash. He's scraping barley together to get enough to pour it all out, to hold nothing back, to pour it all out. All he has in order to rescue her. Fulfill the very meaning of his name. Hosea, he shall rescue. And in classic Hebrew wordplay fashion, Hosea is a variation of another Hebrew name. Yeshua. Jesus which gets a little bit more specific than the generic Hosea. He shall save. Yeshua means Yahweh shall save. It identifies the only one who can save, and Yahweh has saved. Yahweh did not merely put flesh on a picture of his love through Hosea. No, he put flesh on himself to fulfill his love in Christ. And Jesus Christ came to the place of judgment where he took on the pronouncement of judgment. The bloodshed of Jezreel was poured out on him. He was shown no mercy and he became not my people as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he poured out the full price, not paid in barley, but paid in blood. He interposed his precious blood for you, for me, so that the place of judgment becomes the place of salvation, where we've received the pronouncement of salvation, where we are not judged, he's judged in our place, and we are saved. This is the gospel in full focus. This is how the height of God's holiness that will judge sin, righteously so, lovingly so. This is how the height of His holiness and the full depth of His love come together to execute justice on the full depth of my sin while simultaneously bringing me the full height of salvation. It's the gospel, the beautiful, and the only way there is through the difficult. And the gospel, its beauty is higher than we could possibly imagine. Because yes, Hosea brings the depth of the gospel into full focus, into focus through words of personal redemption, and, so point two, and Hosea brings the height of the gospel into focus through words of cosmic restoration. It brings the height of the gospel into focus through words of cosmic restoration. Look at verses 4 and 5 of Hosea 3. Four, in other words, I've just given you this picture through Hosea and his redemption of Gomer, and here's what's about to happen with me and Israel, with me and my people that mirrors that. 
For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Hmm. And David their king, and they shall come in the fear of the Lord, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days, better translated, the last days. God says in the end, these last days, these latter days, they, they are coming. My people, they may be living in exile right now, but afterward they will be in perfect relationship with me. How? It's going to happen through a king from David's line. We know him as Christ, and through him we will come to know the full goodness of the Lord. Cosmic restoration. In chapter 2, you can look back to chapter 2, and this cosmic restoration is described in terms of a new creation. We already mentioned in chapter 1, it's described in terms of a resurrection. God says there will be a final day of salvation in which I will raise my people, make a new creation, and Jesus Christ, the Davidic king, will reign over them perfectly, sovereignly, forever. But, that day's not here yet. Do you notice that in verse 4? First, God says his people are going to have to dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. This parallels what Hosea said to Gomer in verse 3. Look back up to verse 3. He says, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. And I think the best translation of this final phrase is, then I shall be yours. In verse 3, Hosea had already redeemed Gomer, paid the price for her, brought her home. He had already redeemed Gomer, but not yet would they live fully as man and wife. He would love her and woo her away from whoredom. He would be patient with her and he would empower her. He would, he would empower this transformation with a promise. I shall be yours. And God says to his redeemed people, to us, there will be a time when you are already redeemed. I will have already come and paid the price for you. You're already redeemed. But not yet will your salvation have reached consummation. Not yet will our King Jesus be present with us in the flesh but he will already be working to transform us into the bride he has purchased us to be. Ephesians 5, 25, Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by washing the water with the word, so that, at the last day, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Shades, we have been purchased already by Christ, but we have not yet experienced the full consummation of our salvation. But even now, right now, in this already, not yet, He is at work transforming us to fit us into our new identity. I'm not a whore who whores after other gods. I'm a child of God. And He's transforming me, fitting me, making me into that by His power and by His promise. He provides His power through a promise. He will be mine. He shall be mine. That day is coming. 
It's said probably the most beautifully in Hosea 2 and verse 16. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. No longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered no more. No more being prone to wonder. No more leaving the God I love for Baal. No, God says, you will be mine, and I will be yours forever. The holy God of love shall be our supreme treasure, our eternal pleasure. This is the gospel in full focus. The gospel is what God has done. He has redeemed us. The gospel is what God is doing, transforming us by his power. And the gospel is what he will do, save us fully and finally as his forever. It's the gospel in full focus. This is the lens of Hosea 1 through 3. This is the lens of God, Gomer, and the gospel. It's the only lens through which all of Hosea makes sense. Every passage that we study from here on out, we're going to be asking, what does this show us about God? We're going to see him first, and then in light of him, what does it show us about Gomer, about ourselves, and then how does it reveal the good news of the gospel that holds God and Gomer together? That This is the lens for understanding Hosea. It's the lens for understanding all of Scripture. When I read the Bible, this is what I'm looking for. What, what does it show me about God? What does it show me about Gomer, myself? And what does it show me about the gospel that grips us in the grip of grace and holds us together? This is the lens for understanding Hosea, all of Scripture. It's the lens for understanding all of life shades. Do we see reality through this lens? God is the only holy God who perfectly provides for us, protects us, he is our everlasting pleasure. Do we see reality through that lens or do we see a distorted version of reality where we go after other gods because surely they offer things just as good as him? Do we see reality through this lens? Do we see ourselves as a people who were broken, who have been brought home in order to be transformed, not to be unfaithful anymore, but to be fully faithful by the power that he provides? Do we see the brokenness of this world as something that will not last forever so we do not despair, but that the gospel will come to full fruition and he will make all things new? Do we see reality through this lens? Do we see God rightly, ourselves rightly, life rightly? I want to, Shades. I want to. As difficult as it is, there's nothing more beautiful. I want to see reality undistorted. We want to see through the only lens that brings everything into focus. God, Gomer, and the gospel. Amen.